0: Listen, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, to Jerusalem, your God reigns.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, senior pastor of Community Bible Church, of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 10 of the book of Romans, and in this section, which looks at Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as the nation's promised Messiah, we find the Apostle Paul indicating how it is that individuals come to genuine faith in Christ. As we pick up today in verse 15, we will see that the good news, the gospel, has to be delivered, it has to be transmitted in order to be received and accepted. And so, it is important for all believers to be bold to proclaim the power of God in bringing salvation and in changing lives. So let's join Pastor Carl now in a message entitled, Hearing is Not Believing.
0: Would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 15. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. It's often called the Constitution of Christianity because in it are all the solid doctrinal truths on which our Christian faith is based. And there's no other book in all of the New Testament that expounds more deeply, more profoundly, more explicitly concerning the grace of God than the book of Romans. And our passage this morning, of course, is no exception to that. Now, let me bring you into the context, if I might, because a context, a verse, any text without a context is a pretext. And if you pretext a verse of the Bible, you can miss its rich meaning or maybe even distort the original intention for which God wrote it. If you remember, the first eight chapters are doctrinal in focus. Chapters 9 through 11 is what we call the national section of the book of Romans. There's one subject, and it's the people of Israel. In chapter 9, we saw Israel's past election, how God chose them out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah. Then chapter 10, we're exploring their present rejection. Paul is answering for us why it is that the Hebrew people rejected Jesus as the Savior of the world. Notice how the chapter opens in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You could paraphrase it. Brothers, from the bottom of my heart, I long and I pray to God that Israel might be saved. That's the thought expressed. And listen, wherever you come down on the doctrine of sovereign election... If your view of God's sovereignty has removed your passion to win the lost or to pray for the lost, then the theology you've adopted is inaccurate. Paul says in verse 2, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So these were zealous people, but it was a misdirected zeal, and that's why Paul prayed for their conversion. Verse 3 says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. And so they were elected as a nation, but they were being set aside as a nation because of their unbelief, because they sought to establish their own righteousness. They didn't really see themselves as bad as people worthy of condemnation, so they had no one to believe in but themselves. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Verse 4, he explains to me why their rebellious righteousness is incomplete. He says, because Christ, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Old Testament law reminds us all the way through that the answer is not found in works, You cannot work your way to heaven. The answer is found in a Savior who would come. For Moses, verse 5, writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. All the way through the Torah, Moses underscores that if you want to get into heaven by keeping the law, then you better keep it perfectly. In fact, he wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 27, which Paul quotes in his letter to the Galatians, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you want to be saved by human effort, then you better be perfect. Because God is perfect and he can't allow anything into his heaven that will defile it. And so if you're trying to get there that way, the Bible says you're cursed, you're under the wrath of God. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith, that's how God gives it, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. He's simply saying, brethren, we don't need to send a messenger to heaven and say, oh God, planet earth needs a Savior. Bring a Savior down. No, we don't have to ascend into heaven and make such a request because the Savior of the world has already come down. Verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring up Christ from the dead. We don't need to send someone down into the abyss, into the gloomy recesses of the grave and death and hell to rescue and liberate Jesus because he's already been raised from the dead. We don't have to say, Messiah, where are you? Come down from heaven or come up from the grave. No, no, no. He's already come down. He's already died and he's already been risen. And all that is left for us is to come by faith, to believe look at verse 8 but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith which we are preaching salvation is so close Paul said to his Jewish brethren that it is in their mouth and it is in their hearts that's how near it is and that's how near it is to some of you here today how did it get into their mouths and into their hearts two ways every Sabbath the scriptures were read remember Jesus said the scriptures speak of me so they heard of Messiah, of Christ, all the way through the Old Testament, every Sabbath every Sabbath day. And secondly, Paul preached it into their mouths. The word which we, meaning we the apostles, are preaching. We preached it there. We preached it right into their hearts and right into their mouths. Does that mean that because the word was in their heart and in their mouth that they were saved? Oh, no, no, no. It's like a seed that is dormant. It's longing. It's looking. It's waiting. It's hoping to spring to life but that's not yet salvation. Once the word comes into your heart, once the word comes into your mouth, you have to respond with your heart as an act of the will. And when your heart says amen, then your mouth will confess that. And so he writes in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord, literally, Jesus Yahweh, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So why doesn't the Bible say, well, if you believe in your heart that Christ died on the cross, you will be saved? For the simple reason an infidel can record in his mind the historical fact that it's beyond dispute that Jesus literally died on a cross and still deny all the miracles of the Bible. For that matter, why does God highlight this one miracle? Why the miracle of the resurrection? Because that is the capstone of all miracles. When you believe in the resurrection, you are affirming all the other major doctrines of the Christian faith. When you talk about the resurrection, you're talking about his incarnation. Because God came as a real human person in real human flesh and not just as a spirit. When you talk about the resurrection, you're talking about his crucifixion because indeed only a crucified dead person could indeed rise from the dead when you talk about the resurrection you're speaking of his sinlessness death had no power over him because he was the sinless son of god affirming in essence that he was qualified to die in your place when you talk about the resurrection you are speaking of his deity because there is only one who is good only one who is without sin and that is god And so Paul has already said in Romans 1, 4, he was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When you talk about the resurrection, you're speaking about him as judge because a dead judge cannot hold court. But He is alive and someday all people of all time will stand before Him and give an account. When you talk about His resurrection, you're speaking of His second coming. Because He actually, literally, physically came out of the grave, He is going to actually, literally come again to judge the living and the dead. And when you talk about the resurrection, you're really speaking about your own soul. Because what you do with Jesus Christ in the end will determine what God will do with you. Notice the relationship in verse 10, to the heart, to the mouth. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness or justification, some translations say. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So we've studied carefully verses 9, 10, and 11, and we've seen the relationship between the heart and the mouth. He reverses them in the next verse, and in the next verse, he doesn't even mention the mouth. Why? Because he's not talking about two different things. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about two sides of the same thing. And so Paul taught what Christ taught, that if inwardly you said in your heart amen to Christ, then outwardly you will openly confess Him before men. Notice verse 11, for the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same is Lord of all abounding in riches to all who call upon him. Verse 12 begins with the words for there is no distinction. The first time and the last time we saw that, if you remember, was in Romans 3.22. It introduces Romans 3.23. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When God looks down on heaven and He looks at the human race, some 7 billion plus people... He doesn't see jew versus gentile he doesn't see african asian european it doesn't make any difference whether you're moral or immoral religious or irreligious god sees the same thing all of us have sinned we've all missed the mark of his holy perfect glory and righteousness the ground is level at the cross and when you understand that it begins to obliterate the way you look at people through a prejudicial eye verse 12 there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same is Lord of all. In other words, no one can claim some kind of special connection to the living God. None of us have some special access to God. Again, the ground is level. And so he showed our need for access in Romans 3. But here in Romans 10 and verse 12, he reminds us that we all have the same access, that whoever will call on him will be saved. And when you call on him, he does not simply answer but he is abounding in riches for all who call upon him he richly answers and if you were here in our wednesday night series i did on soteriology i spoke of 26 things that happen the moment you become a christian god richly answers when you call upon christ in faith for whoever verse 13 whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you remember, that is a quotation from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. And if you go back and you read Joel 2:32, you will see it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in deference to capital L, small letters, O, R and D, because he's using the term Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Paul quotes this verse, and contextually he applies it to Jesus Christ, because Jesus is indeed equal with the Father. Listen, any cult, any denomination, any church, any pastor, any preacher, any Mormon who shows up at your door and they say, well, we believe the Father is one. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They don't mean the same thing you mean. They say, well, he's one in purpose. He is one in purpose, but he's far more than one in purpose. He's one in nature. And so the same term that is used to describe God the Father is the term that's used here to describe Christ. And because his name is now revealed to all men, God has overlooked the times of ignorance and there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so he takes the quotation from Joel and he applies it to Jesus Christ as Lord. for who Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then if you remember in verses 14 and in the first part of verse 15, we looked at four questions. Notice, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And we followed carefully the logical train of thought that the Spirit of God expresses through the quilt of the Apostle Paul think about this. If the gospel is designed for all, if the invitation is for Jew and Gentile alike, and if the language of the gospel is a whosoever kind of language, whoever will call upon his name will be saved, and it is, then implicit in the word call is that the gospel must be preached to all who will listen to it. People cannot call upon him if they've not heard about him. Men cannot call upon him in whom they have not believed. They cannot believe in him in whom they have not heard. And they cannot hear about him unless someone goes and tells them. So question one is very simple. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, the sinner... Calling upon Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord for salvation is preceded first by believing that Jesus is able to do precisely what he promised to be able to do by his death and resurrection. Question number two, how will they believe on him and whom they have not heard? The sinner cannot believe the gospel until he hears the gospel. So hearing precedes believing, and believing precedes calling. But he's not done yet. He takes it a step further. Question three, and how will they hear without a preacher? The Apostle Paul spoke to the Corinthians, and he described the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. There's a lot of ways in which to communicate, but God uses the preaching, the sharing of the gospel to convert men and women and boys and girls. He anoints God's people. He sends them in the power of the Holy Spirit to share. And he's not done. Notice the fourth question, verse 15, where we left off. How will they preach unless they are sent? And we've studied that in the broadest sense, Every born-again, blood-bought child of God has been sent and commissioned by Jesus Christ. The Great Commission does not apply to a select few. It applies to each and every person. So two questions highlight the unbeliever's problem. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And then there are two questions that highlight the Christian's responsibility. And how will they hear... Without a preacher, that is unless someone tells them. How will they preach unless they are sent? And we saw that this word preacher, unlike in the 21st century, where it usually registers the connotation on our thinking of a professional who's called as a missionary, as a pastor, as an evangelist to preach the gospel, the word he uses simply means to herald the good news. It simply means to, to tell a message. And indeed, it's applied not just to those who are preachers, but to every single Christian. And so Paul's looking at us in the eye and, in essence, saying, listen, God has commissioned you. God has called you. It would be very easy to take these verses and to dump them on the missionary or the pastor or the evangelist. But God is applying this to us. He is applying it to us in every venue of life Whatever we do for a living, he has called us, if we've been saved, to share the good news. All right, that's where we left. That's the context. Let's pick up precisely where we left off in verse 15. After he asked the question, how will they preach? How will anyone go and tell them unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, will I anger you? And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You can see there in your note taking outline that the title of the message is hearing is not believing. Because this passage explains the unbelief of Israel in our day and really the unbelief of the average American as well. Three simple truths I want you to get. First, Israel did not heed the good news. Israel did not heed the good news. Now, when you look down and glance at the paragraph of scripture that we're examining today, you can see that most of these verses are in all capital letters. And of course, that tells you it's an Old Testament quotation. And I suppose if I wanted to just preach the highlight of Romans, I would skip this passage. What we're looking at today is not the milk of the word, it's the meat of the word. It's challenging, but it's rich in truth and it's rich in application. If we can call out to God, help us, ask him to help us to understand it. And if we are willing to apply it today. So gird up your loins for action, pay attention, let God speak. Notice again where we left off, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And if you have a, a Bible with marginal notes, you can go out in the margin, and if you look at verse 15, where will it direct you to? Where does this Old Testament quote come from? Isaiah, I heard someone say it, Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Now, Isaiah 52 and verse 7 is looking at a future day when the nation of Israel will believe. In fact, Isaiah chapters 51 to 53 are probably the best-known chapters written by the prophet today by most Christians. In Isaiah 51 and 53, he's looking down the corridors of time, not just to the initial rejection when Jesus would come the first time, but Isaiah also looks down to their ultimate reception, when Jesus comes again, that when he comes again, they will be there in faith. And of course, their salvation is possible because of Isaiah 53, because of his work as the suffering servant, dying for iniquity and coming out of the grave alive. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. It opens with these words. Awake, awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem is... Synonyms, they refer to the same city. The holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. And then he tells them to shake yourself from the dust, rise up, O captive Jerusalem, loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. To shake yourself from the dust was basically a command to stop mourning because in scripture, putting dust on one's head was a sign of mourning and a sign of repentance. And because Jerusalem was going to be freed from her chains, never to be enslaved again, they had reason to rejoice. And if you know the chapter, he's looking all the way down time to a future time. It's called the Great Tribulation in the New Testament. It's called by the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble, that seven-year period in human history when there will be a one-world leader called Antichrist and a one-world government and a one-world religion. And it's during that time that God is going to bring the Jewish people to faith in Christ. And they are going to be freed in the oppression of the Gentiles that they've known since the time of Daniel. Called the time of the Gentiles will end and they will be free. He says, for thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Sadly and tragically, The Israelis gave themselves to other gods in Isaiah's day. And just like someone who is physically immoral, these people were spiritually immoral. They were committing spiritual adultery. They were selling themselves for nothing, for a false god. Yet God in his great mercy will redeem them without money. The redemption of a soul is costly. It costs God everything, the blood of Christ, but it is the free gift of salvation to everyone and anyone who believes. And he will describe that in the 53rd chapter, that this salvation cost us the Messiah who would be smitten of God and afflicted. In verses 4 and 5 here in Isaiah 52, he speaks of the nations that oppressed Israel, Assyria. Well, first the Egyptians for 400 years, then the Assyrians who carried away the 10 uh, northern tribes off into slavery. And then the Babylonians who were getting ready to come and to carry away the two southern tribes called as Judah. And so when he looks at these people who had habitually oppressed Israel, what did they do? They blasphemed, according to verses 5 and 6, the God of Israel. They mocked the God of Israel. They said, oh, you're God. Look how strong he is now. You're working for us. And they said, we reign. We are in control. And the truth is that Isaiah wants to underscore is that he reigns. There is coming a day when they will see the sovereignty of the God of Israel. And there are people today who mock us as Christians, who laugh at our morality, who, who put their nose up at the things that we teach. And they think, we're in control. We reign. And they're going to see, no, the world will see that our God reigns. We sing that song, and it comes right out of this chapter. They will see that Jesus is Lord when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so the prophet in that context, sharing this great news that is going to come upon them, says this in verse 7. And I'm getting to this because this is the verse Paul is going to quote. Listen, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, to Jerusalem, your God reigns. Isaiah prophesies here of the lovely feet of him who announces salvation, who announces the good news. Now back here in our text, look carefully at verse 15. This is the verse that he is quoting. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The Holman Christian translation that the Southern Baptist came out with a decade ago renders it this way, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. And that's good too. The verb, ongalizo, is often uh, translated to preach good news or to preach glad tidings. And the verb, ongalizo, when you take each... um, Greek word and you just put the equivalent sound into English, it comes out as evangelion, and into Latin and then to English as evangelism. And so when we speak about evangelism, we're talking about someone who is preaching the good news. When we speak of evangelical Christians, we're talking about Christians who believe the good news based on the revelation of scripture. And I've told you many times before that the word, though it has a religious connotation in our day, could be used very broadly in the first century of any kind of good news. Not only in Isaiah's day, but in Paul's day, and even in our day. Uh, Not typically in our day, but if you lived in the first century and you were a student and you passed a very difficult exam, your good news might be, I passed. That would be what you would announce. I passed. If you were a couple and you were hoping and longing and waiting that you might be able to conceive and then you finally do, your good news would be, we're going to have a baby. If you were a soldier, your good news to your compatriot who had not heard is, the war is over. And so it is used of any kind of good news. And sometimes even in the New Testament, it's not used of the gospel, it's just used of some good news. But when the article is present or when the context defines the good news, when the article is present, the good news, he's speaking specifically of what Isaiah 53 will unfold of the death, burial, and resurrection. Because the good news, the gospel, Paul said I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And Paul says how beautiful are the feet of those who eventually Evangelize, in essence, their world. That's good news. And so he's taking this quote from Isaiah, which again is looking down the corridors of time when they are going to believe on Jesus as the Lord. They will look on him whom they have pierced in faith. And he applies it to the church. Why? Because we are sharing that good news today. And we believe in the same good news that they are going to believe in. And so when we share the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God says we have beautiful feet.
1: To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for tablets and smartphones, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. Simply ask for program number ROM53, entitled, Hearing Is Not Believing. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more from Audrey on her new podcast, Rare But Real, found in the Apple and Spotify podcasts. When we return Monday, we'll continue our message, Hearing Is Not Believing. Join us then as we search the Scriptures...